MSW Media. Before we get to this week's episode, please look in the description of this episode for a link to our very first listener survey. We really want your feedback so we can make the podcast better. Plus, if you fill out the survey, you can win an Amazon gift card. Now, let's get to the episode. Today, former special counsel Robert Mueller testified for hours before the House Judiciary and Intel Committees. Democrats ask questions that try to inform the public about the contents of the report. At times, they ask Mueller to repeat the report itself. Republicans challenged Mueller and tried to get him to talk about various right-wing theories that call into question the origin of his investigation. What can we learn from Mueller's testimony? And what will it mean for the Trump administration? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name is Renato Mariotti. I'm a practicing lawyer, a former federal prosecutor, and a CNN legal analyst. And I'm joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, the host of the Patty Vasquez Show, who joins us regularly on this podcast. Well, Patty, I, I think that listening to Robert Mueller talk about legal topics for I don't know, was it six hours? Must have bored you more than listening to me talk about legal oh, topics. It's pretty dry. It's exciting. You know, you make it, you get some popcorn. You maybe uh, start drinking a little early. <laughs> <laughs> there no, you go. It was, look, a lot of people are obviously fascinated and, want, and they want to know more. And you're, nothing lights up your Twitter feed like a Mueller conversation. Uh, I have to ask, and I'm sure a lot of people want to know, and this is on your thread, uh, is there anything that you didn't know before today as a result of Mueller's testimony? It's a great question. I think a lot of the things that he said that I didn't know yesterday are things that I'll say are around the edges. Um, you know, he talked, for example, about whether the statute of limitations uh, for a president to be indicted could be told, uh, told meaning it could be paused in some way, um, how, you know, put to the side for a period of time while president's in office. Uh, he talked about um, why he believed that his investigation was free of bias and influence. I mean, he really defended his, uh, the people who worked for him. He also um, talked about how he thought Trump could be indicted after leaving office. Uh, you know, he spent some time talking about why he did not um, uh, pursue, uh, subpoena Trump and pursue a, uh, compelling Trump's testimony. Very interesting conversation in exchange where he talked about how he assumed and presumed that Trump was going to fight that in court. It's going to last a long period of time and it would extend the length of his investigation considerably. Um, and, another, and he was asked by the congressman, I believe it was Congressman Maloney, well, you know, he, he, he had read one other part of the report that where Mueller said that the strength of the evidence that you have and whether you need the testimony goes into it. And, he's, and he said, well, essentially, did you have so much evidence of obstruction you didn't need the testimony? And Mueller said, well, it was a spectrum. He tried to um, hedge that. And I think essentially, you know, part of the part of the issue here is that Mueller did feel that 
there was sufficient evidence as to some instances of, of, of obstruction without an interview. There's also, by the way, Patty, times where Mueller didn't answer questions that I thought were really interesting. He, didn't an- he would not answer as to what, whether or not Barr's letter was accurate. He wouldn't. He really did not answer that. Right? Yeah, he he got a I got a smile a little bit when he didn't answer that one. Uh, he didn't answer, uh, for example, whether Trump took the fifth, uh, whether Trump Jr. took the fifth. Well, why wouldn't he uh, answer whether or not Barr's statements were accurate or reflected what was you know what he had presented? Because that seems does he not want to challenge Barr publicly? Well, it's it's a great question. So here's what I would say: if he Te- Barr's letter was technically accurate, but highly misleading. Barr is very good at this. He's a, he's a, to, appears to me to be a skilled lawyer, and he's very good at saying things that are like technically true. You know, it's like um, you know, you have a kid that you, you send up to clean their room. Like, did you clean your room? Yes, but they didn't clean their entire room, right? They cleaned a small corner of the room, or they spent two minutes cleaning <laughs> their room. Analogy. Yeah, exactly. So. Technically speaking, right, um, he quoted Mueller's report, but only half sentences and like little words here and there and, and to give a, a, a false impression. So if Mueller said it's accurate, that's the that's the true answer to the statement. It would be misleading because it would suggest that Barr's letter was true to the public when, in fact, it was not. It was highly misleading and perhaps intentionally so. So and so Mueller was this is the sort of three dimensional chest that was going on, I think, inside of Mueller's mind. He decided not to go there. OK. All right. Well, disappointing for a lot of people because, man, that drama, I think, of being asked that question. Everyone's like, come on, say it. Yeah, that's interesting. But I, I, I was curious, too. Here's another. I'll give you another piece of drama. You know, being asked, did Donald Trump Jr. take the fifth or Trump take right. the fifth? Part of the consideration there is if they are ever indicted in the future, it you, you, the, the fact of someone taking the fifth should never be used against them. Jurors should not know that you took the fifth. It's something that is in our system of justice is supposed to be never used against you. So a prosecutor talking about somebody exercising their Fifth Amendment rights is generally it's it's kind of a big no go zone. And I think Mueller was thinking there's all sorts of potential reasons why I don't necessarily want to be making a statement about somebody exercising their Fifth Amendment rights. Totally separate reasoning. But I hope this helps listeners understand why the guy was up there. thinking hard before he answered some of these questions. And I had some uh, moments where I just wondered, yeah, why is that? I didn't realize how many times uh, Mueller had referenced journalist pieces, whether it was, and he was asked this, uh, why did he use uh, stories from the New York Times, the Post, and Fox News? Yeah, you know, that is a question I felt like that uh, it was a Republican congresswoman, I think, who asked it. She was trying to be misleading, uh, there, either that or perhaps she, it, it evinced her own lack of understanding. But she has staff, I think, who could help explain that to her. Essentially, um, Mueller was citing news articles not because he's saying that they're true, but to show that these items were reported. They had an impact on Trump and or others at times in the investigation, and then they did things as a result. For example, there was reporting that Trump was under investigation personally for obstruction of justice. When that happened, that dramatically shifted Trump's 
stance and attitude and, and aggressiveness towards uh, uh, trying to impede the Mueller investigation. Right. So it was more to demonstrate how Trump was influenced by you know stories in the news because, I mean, I guess we can say his ego or what that means for his campaign, where, you know, he does t- tend to react when Fox News says something. Well, I will just say this, and, I, and I'm, this is about as, as, um, uh, as charitable as I can be uh, to President Trump in this instance. There's a lot of people when they are under investigation or accused of by others committing crimes who want to, quote, fight back, to use his term. They just don't have the means to do so. I think that, you know, as president, you have to be held to a higher standard because when you say words and when you command people to do things, it can impede the investigation. Um, You know, it's one thing if you're somebody who's under investigation here in Chicago by the Chicago Police Department and you're out there screaming that we should get rid of the, the head of the CPD and, you know, the, the prosecutors are a bunch of lunatics and bad-mouthing him to all your friends and making your views known. But here where you're the president of the United States and you're telling your subordinates this stuff, it has a real impact and it's a very different thing. And the most, that, that is the, the best spin for, the, for Trump's, on Trump's end, on the obstruction point that I can make, is that he is a human being, he is frustrated. Uh, that's what I think a lot of his supporters try to argue. I think the issue uh, is that he did more than just mere talk um, and that a lot of it was directed towards people to try to get them to do things to impede the investigation. And, of course, one of the things that comes up over and over again is the idea that you can't charge a sitting president, right, the OLC's yeah. policy. You know, so the idea that uh, that no one is above the law when actually it seems as though the president is is so frustrating for people. This is something that just gnaws at the very edges mm-hmm. of their lives, I think. Well, I, exactly. You heard that, uh, particularly in the Judiciary Committee, I think most of the Congress people uh, Congress members repeated no one's above the law, I think, multiple times, like a theme that they were trying to develop. Right. And it is certainly the case uh, that, that that's an ideal that we have, and that's how our our society is, is supposed to be organized, or our system of government is supposed to be organized. That is what the rule of law is about. In the case of the president, I think what people are realizing is there are limitations that allow people to get away with doing things um, that... Um, Others couldn't get away with doing. And I think everybody knows to some extent that that's the case, that there are people who are powerful or rich and can get away with things. We've talked about Jeffrey Epstein and others recently. Um, and it's always galling when that happens. But in the case of President Trump, um, I think people are rightfully very concerned and upset about it. I'm wondering if there were any legislators, any of the, the uh, those that were asking questions that you particularly appreciated their line of questioning. I know one listener really thought that Ted Lieu was doing some work that maybe others could have taken a similar approach? Yeah, I thought there are certainly, in terms of craft, some did very well. So there's an, a few different um, uh, House Judiciary members, for example, who had been trial lawyers or for a long period of time, who had been either prosecutors like uh, Congressman Liu, or there's one gentleman who I called out, I think, on Twitter, who was a criminal defense attorney for many years, for 27 years, and he had a very... He had a great cadence um, in, I think he was an African-American from Georgia, very great cadence in terms of how he asked questions. He was clearly an experienced questioner. That, that's just style in knowing how to ask questions. That's just craft of doing. If you practice anything for a long time, you get good at it. But I will say I was also very impressed by some members of Congress who came up with lines of questioning that were unique and that really 
showed that they had given a lot of thought to this and tried to come up with thoughtful questions. And that, particularly in the Intel side, I mentioned Maloney with that question about why he didn't subpoena Trump and trying to piece together different segments of the report and really confront Mueller with that. I thought the question about tolling from uh, from Mike Quigley, I thought that was very interesting. Uh, question that is a bit, I wouldn't say out of left field, but it's something that Mueller wasn't necessarily ready for. And I think he gave candid answers to both of those questions because they were basically within the four corners of his report, but they required some definite thought on his part, and they weren't stated explicitly in the text. And what else stuck out, stuck out for you? What else were the things that you just caught your attention? Uh, you know, some people are obviously looking around the room, seeing who's on camera and things like that. What, what were some of the elements that jumped out at you? Sure. I, I thought that in the House Judiciary uh, Committee, they were clearly they had a scripted uh, story that they were trying to tell. They were getting him to repeat parts of the report. I think that they had figured out that Americans hadn't read this thing. And so they were walking through certain elements of obstruction. I was impressed with the coordination that they had. I was impressed with the discipline that they had on that. But is never going to be necessarily gripping testimony unless people are gripped by the facts. And because M- Robert Mueller was not going to be a prop for them and he was not you know he was willing to say yes or that's in the report or whatever but he wants to appear to be distanced from what they're trying to do on the republican side i thought the approach was really mixed some um there were some republican congressmen who i think genuinely were interested in figuring out why Mueller was doing certain things you know uh, mr stensenbrenner for example was a republican was really trying to figure out, well, you know, it's not very helpful to me if you're not, you know, I'm trying to paraphrase his words, if you're not saying he committed a crime or not. You know, when Kenneth Starr was here, he told me this is an impeachable offense. You're not telling me that. And Mueller had explained, well, there's a different statute and this and that. But he was just genuinely, he appeared to be genuinely frustrated with the fact that Mueller was trying to, in his mind, I think, have it both ways. Representative Hurd on the Republican side was somebody who actually asked questions about the threat to um, our elections from the Russian, you know, interference and and subversion efforts. Those are those are good. But there are other Republicans who basically were just giving a lot of talking points, giving making speeches, trying to, you know, get Mueller to, you know, some gotcha moment with Mueller. And the guy basically had to just stand there and take that. And I will say at times I felt very bad for Robert Mueller, and I will, uh, you know, confess. I was, you know, I had, got, I had, I had put on Twitter a text from one of my family members who voted for Trump, who will probably vote for Trump again, but who felt very bad for Mueller, because, you know, partly I think just being my family member and seeing how I was treated at times as a prosecutor, he was somebody who was there who's getting kind of battered here. You know, on one side you have people who to a layperson, to this person, was like, you know, why are these Democrats asking him to remember pages from the report? Can't they read it themselves? And then the Republicans were beating up on the guy, and they felt bad for him. You know, for me, I didn't feel bad for Robert Mueller. He's a former Marine, and he can, and a federal prosecutor. He can take this. But it did, I think, I did feel at times that it was disgraceful the way in which the, the kind of gotcha theater was being played by certain Republican Congress. And there were some, there were some who, yeah, there were some who thought that he he actually looked a little. Did you feel he looked a little fragile? That's what some people were were commenting on. Yeah, I mean, there were some people who were saying that that he wasn't sharp, he was fragile. I thought that was overstated. I thought some on the Republican side were trying to. Um, develop that line to suggest that he was 
uh, carried in a certain direction by his subordinates that somehow the what they were, you know, what Trump calls the angry Democrats were, you know, leading him in some direction, which I don't think was the case. Robert Mueller, to me, seemed fully in control of his faculties. I think that certainly the fact that he's 74 years old plays a a factor. Okay, he's not he's not, you know, somebody fresh out of law school is 25 years old and zipping around. Uh, I think that's a good thing for a prosecutor. I think we want prosecutors to be careful and cautious and deliberative. And what I saw was somebody who had uh, was getting questions thrown at him immediately, one after another, because I've only got five minutes. I've only got five minutes, so I've got to speak a mile a minute. I have to stop you if you spend more than three seconds answering. All this BS that he had to deal with. And they're asking him to answer things that are going to be picked apart past his lifetime for decades potentially more to come and he has to remember hundreds and pages of stuff and footnotes and appendices jesus yeah it's a lot it's a that's a tough job for anybody well let's bring in my uh my friend and our our frequent guest and sometimes guest host asha rangapa Uh, asha is a former fbi counterintelligence agent she is a professor at uh at yale university She's a CNN uh, legal and national security analyst, uh, and she has been following these proceedings very closely. Welcome back to the podcast, Asha. Obviously, it was a huge day uh, today, no doubt. Yes, um, I was following along uh, both on streaming through while well, I was on the Acela and on Twitter when I couldn't. And I couldn't hear. Well, let me ask you as a starting point, what was your kind of big picture takeaway from all these hours of hearing today? My big picture takeaway is that Mueller confirmed just the basic facts that you and I and other definitely the legal analysts have been repeating over and over again, um, namely that there was evidence of obstruction that, you know, he wasn't he could not exonerate the president. I know there was a lot of debate about, you know, that that piece of it um, that, you know, what going through some of those actual instances and the actions that the president took. Um, and I thought actually on the on the volume one piece, it was quite robust in terms of really hammering home that Russia tried to interfere in the election, that it was welcomed um, and you know, and, the, and that the Trump, you know, associates and, and he tried to cover it up and lie about it. So, you know, I don't think there was anything new, but, you know, he kind of just confirmed it out loud that, yes, this is in there. And it really pushed back on the no exoneration, no collusion, you know, exclamation point that the president has been tweeting out for a while. Yeah, I, I have to say, I um I generally agree with that. I, one thing I would just note, you know, you, you kind of mentioned that particularly in the volume one side of things. In other words, the House Intel Committee's discussion of the Russia issues this afternoon, that um, I think, it, you know, there is a kind of a consensus that 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 hearing went better, uh, at least for Democrats. Uh, and I think that part of that was because the the folks in the Judiciary Committee who are handling the obstruction stuff from volume two we're trying to walk through a lot of detail about specific yeah. instances of obstruction. They were going from count by count by count of five different instances and all this other stuff. 
to try to make a case that there were, you know, you know, impeachable offenses that were in that report. And that was a little level of detail that was not only hard for them to walk through in their five minute segments, but also Robert Mueller being asked about very hyper specific details had to make sure that he wasn't saying anything inaccurate. So he was constantly trying to flip through his report, copy the report, make sure he got he got it right and wasn't going beyond that. And it slowed things down and it was not um, efficient. Whereas on the, the Intel committee, that, that wasn't what they were trying to do. They were basically just trying to persuade people that there were some very disturbing things in that uh, volume of the report. And so they were kind of approaching it more holistically and they could just do a topic by topic at a higher level. And I think Mueller was then more comfortable having a, a, a conversation about many of those topics. I think I think that's exactly right. I mean, the uh, the obstruction side is uh, complicated, right? Because you have all of these different incidents. Um, so you either get into the weeds or you get into basically legal theory, right? It's what what Mueller was arguing, his legal approach to obstruction, I don't think makes a lot of intuitive sense for people. Um, and, you know, it, it's really in this kind of theoretical realm um, that's difficult to convey to a lay person. And, and it leaves a lot of room for spin or for, you know, trying to catch him in, in a gotcha moment or something like that. So, yes, I think that was a, a harder and I'm kind of surprised that they didn't flip it around because I think that could have been more effective. Uh, yeah, I think you. I think you may have. Met, I'm not sure if you mentioned that or someone else online. Uh, but I thought that was a very good insight. I agree with you, Asha. You know, because I think that the second hearing drove home what was the like what were, was the investigation about, right? Russian interference. How? Who were they contacting? What were they doing? What were they trying to influence? Once you at least you could get a handle on that, at least you know what he was trying to obstruct, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and the, so the motive, of, it, yeah. It helps flesh it out. Yeah, it adds to, you know, why Why does it matter that he was trying to get Sessions to unrecuse? Why does it matter that he was trying to get McGann to fire Mueller? Um, those things take on more significance when you understand what was at stake under underneath it all. Exactly right. I, I think that makes a lot of sense. I will say that, from my perspective, I think the format really killed the ability of um, of the um, House Judiciary Democrats to have questioning on these topics. In other words, if Robert Mueller was my witness at a jury trial and I had an hour or two or three to work through th- these questions in a very methodical way, I could put the the report up on a screen, have him read passages from the report, discuss them and walk through it. And we had three hours or four hours, just me and him working through all of that in front of a jury. I would have no I think you could walk through those issues and you could then have an argument at the end where you explain your 15 minute argument, 30 minute argument, whatever it would be explaining all of that. This format is just not made for that, and I think it. No. It, yeah, they're trying to put a, a round, a square peg into a round hole. Yeah, it's choppy. It goes from one to the other. You know, you have people switching topics, um, like you said, and I think especially with regard to the obstruction side, you saw that because he, you know, Mueller was like trying to find the page and the citation, and you know that in of itself is sort of gets very snoozy. You know, when your people are shuffling around looking for particular citations and stuff. So, 
Yeah, and I and I could see why he did because Asha. Absolutely. I, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you've had this, but all day I've been asked all of these fine questions, detailed questions about specific words that Mueller said. Well, when he said this sentence, do you think he meant this or that? You know, some parsing every little word the guy says. No wonder he had to be so careful and look at the report. If he got one word wrong, everyone would pick it apart till the end of time. Yeah. Yeah. And they kind of did it to him when they were like, you know, isn't aren't collusion and conspiracy colloquially used the same way? And he was like, no. Um, and then they're like, but you said in footnote, you know, 52, mm-hmm. blah, 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 blah. <laughs> like, and it, it says it says something like that. Um, so, yes, he, he he had to be on guard for that, for sure. Right. I mean, it's very hard. It's a 448 page report. Most of those people hadn't even read it. He had to memorize it, essentially, is what they were asking him to do and repeat it verbatim. I mean, come on. Uh, A very, very difficult situation. I will say my if I had to say if you if you force me to put a gun to my head and say there has to be some huge takeaway, because that's how people want to feel about these things, that there's some big theory or takeaway. My takeaway, if there's a winner here, is that it's Robert Mueller himself. And, And here's what I mean by that. Robert Mueller went from beginning to end in these two hearings, and he did it his way. He answered the questions that he wanted to answer. He didn't answer the questions he didn't. Um, he, tr- he was generally able to stay within the four corners of his report. He did not please either side. He definitely didn't seem political. He definitely was frustrating both sides by seeing above it all or separate from, his, from it all. And in the end, he seemed like a guy who was just trying to do his job and make it through those six hours and wasn't particularly excited about being there. And I think that's exactly the impression he wanted to leave and exactly the end note that he wanted to leave for this investigation. Yeah. I mean, look, Mueller is not going to be remembered as a Kenneth Starr. There's just no way. Um, no matter how much, you know, even his uh, adversaries, you know, try to undermine him. Um, and, you know, the other piece is remember that the purpose of the special counsel regulations is to, you know, reinforce the public's faith in the administration of justice. That's why it's there, that when there are these very sensitive investigations, ones of national importance, ones that, ones that implicate the president, that that there is an investigation that happens independently, objectively, in a bipartisan, you know, or, you know, without political influence. And I think definitely he achieved that. And I will say that the care that he was taking and in how to respond, which you said was frustrating, in my opinion, I think it actually um, then made the times that he answered with a punchy yes, or that's true, or that's accurate, that much more, you know, powerful. Um, because you know that he would not be saying those words if it was not a hundred percent what he knew to be true. Exactly. Exactly. Right. And I have to say that for me, when I was listening to it and I'm sure you were in the same way, we, we knew what he was getting away, what he, what he could get away with not answering and what he, he, what he did have to give him and didn't have to give the, uh, the members of Congress. And so at times when he did do what you just said, Ash, and said, yeah, that's correct. Uh, or he, you know, even sometimes where he said a few sentences to explain something, I was like, wow, you know, that's really interesting. Uh, you know, that, you know, he really wanted to get out there, for example, I think he really wanted to make, you know, crystal clear uh, his feelings about um, Russia's um, impact, not only yes. in this election, but on future elections, for example. Yes, yes. Um, or even, and I think this was, it was Schiff, I believe, who asked him, you know, if if you welcome um, 
an offer from a foreign government and don't report it to the FBI, wouldn't that be unethical? And he said, yes. And then I think he added, it could be criminal. You know, so um, there were times when he, you know, added something to kind of emphasize uh, what he believed to be the framework. And I I thought that, that that's partly why on the collusion side, um, it, it was more, I don't want to say more effective. It was just, it, it gave a lot more information uh, because it made clear that a lot of these actions that he was looking at, even though they didn't rise to a criminal conspiracy, were clearly wrong um, against the interests of the United States and potentially criminal, even if they weren't in you know these individual instances um, in terms of the evidence. Well, yeah, to talk about, I'd say, what, some of the specifics from that portion of the hearing. I mean, one, the very interesting discussion is the, in, the discussion he had with uh, Mike Quigley, who's I think has been on our uh, on our podcast before, um, you know, asked him about tolling the statute of limitations uh, during uh, presidency if the person yeah. was reelected. And essentially he said, if Trump gets reelected, will he be above the law? I thought it was a very interesting question. And Mueller essentially, you know, at the beginning, he said, I don't know the answer to that, which I thought was an honest answer. I don't think any courts ever considered it. So none of us really know. It's all fairly speculative. Um, but then kind of at the end, he said, well, you know, I think the answer is no, it wouldn't be told. And and I think that is also a pretty honest answer. And the the the, the issue there, and I know, you know, Neil Katyal, I think several months ago, told us that he thought it would be told. And I think he's it's a very smart argument. And I think. There's a logic to it with the Constitution, but I do think that a criminal defendant would have an argument that they had no notice of this. They weren't aware of this. It's not like it's in a statute book anywhere. There's any established law in it. And essentially now, years later, you're saying, well, out of nowhere, we're coming up with this principle. I think that there's if I was a betting person, I would bet that a court would not uh, toll. And so. Uh, I think he was struggling in real time uh, to answer that question, which I think he thought it was important to answer, even though it was not in his report. Yeah, um, and I and I agree with you, and I think with what his you know answer was, which I I don't see how it would be told either, um, unless there was some actual statute passed to to clarify that. But I think the flip side is, you know, that does provide an additional justification to begin an impeachment inquiry. Because if you don't, if you're saying that the statute of limitations for a crime won't toll, and therefore it might expire before someone leaves office, the office that has shielded them from being held accountable for a crime, then it almost leaves no choice but to take whatever action is available to hold the person accountable in some way. Um, or to remove them from office so that they can be charged. Otherwise, you are, in fact, saying that they're above the law, right? Um, yeah. But if you commit a crime and you just happen to be elected president, you can just, like, ride it out for eight years if if the statute of limitations happens to uh, run out in that time. Yeah, I, I, I do think there's a real logic to it. Um, but, of course, um, you know, I think we are very much in unprecedented waters, and the reality is, uh, unfortunately, that, um, uh, you know, I, I think the lack of precision here um, and the, la- the fact that these issues have never been dealt with before, I think, could potentially benefit Trump. Uh, 
Um, Patty, did we have any uh, question from our listeners related to, to some of this? Of course we do. Uh, okay. Now, so much is uh, dependent on the OLC policy, the Office of Legal Counsel, but it seems like it's being widely questioned. Can it be challenged? And other people are obviously chiming in and saying it's not even law. It seems to just be sort of a, a policy rather than something that is uh, codified. Right. Yeah. It, it not only it can, can it be challenged, I mean, basically a new attorney general, correct me if I'm wrong or not, could simply rescind it. Right. Correct. This is um, an internal, essentially like a legal memo or a legal analysis of a constitutional issue, which they have used as a basis to guide their practices and policies. Um, it is not settled law. It's not something that's been decided by a court. So, you know, a new attorney general can say, well, this is not going to be, you know, we're simply not going to follow this policy. And I think it's as simple as that. You know, I think I do think that going back to Mueller's testimony today, he had a really good comeback to, I forget which representative it was, but who basically said, you know, if it's DOJ policy to not indict uh, a sitting president, then on, on what grounds or justification would do you could you even investigate him like basically he's saying if you can't indict them then it, under your policy then the policy itself would um you know not give you grounds to investigate and and what Mueller made clear was actually the OLC opinion states that even though you can't indict that you may investigate the president um in order to gather evidence presumably for some point in the future Exactly right. Um, and that is what that is stated in the policy. And there are many reasons. There are many reasons why that's the case. And of course, that I think is a good segue to another really interesting exchange, multiple exchanges about whether or not Trump can be indicted after leaving office. And on multiple occasions, Mueller explicitly said that Trump could be indicted after leaving office. He wasn't making a judgment there that there was sufficient evidence. He was trying to stay on out. Um, outside of of making that uh, conclusion or judgment, but he definitely said that that's one reason that there is, that the policy allows you to um, gather evidence and conduct an investigation, and that you know as soon as he leaves office, uh, Donald Trump is in jeopardy. It's a topic I've discussed, I've written a column about, and many people have talked about, it, and I thought it was very interesting to, to hear Mueller discuss that himself. Yeah, hey, Renato. So I have a question for you. Okay. Um, Going back to the exoneration piece, so that what you just said that that uh, the president can be is open to criminal liability once he leaves office. This is what he says at the beginning of volume two for why they completed the investigation while memories were fresh and they could get testimony and evidence that there could be these other avenues. It might be a constitutional procedure like impeachment. It could be a future prosecution, presumably when he leaves office. Um, and, you know, in doing that, he's saying this is why we're, we did this investigation, but yet we're not going to give a uh, our prosecutorial conclu- like decision on whether um, obstruction occurred. And given how careful he was today, why did he include the language about if we could exonerate the president, we would, um, but we cannot? Like, in other words, why not just gather the evidence, lay it all out, even element by element like he did? And just let the reader come to the conclusion or wh- whoever picks it up from there. Because he says it not just once in the report. I, he says it at least twice and I believe possibly three times. Man, it's such a great question, Asha. And it really gets to, I think, the core, I think the core, 
legal um, wrangling that was occurring between him and a number of Republican representatives. Yes. Frankly, in my in my mind, some of the more interesting and important exchanges, some by Republicans, I think, were clearly just trying to figure out what was going on here and others who I think were (laughs) misleading the public in their questioning. And so let me just start by saying that Republicans do have a point that it is not generally the business of prosecutors to exonerate people and, and to declare right. their innocence, right? What you do is you investigate and then you either charge somebody and then there's a criminal law process where you have you can have a lawyer and you go to court and you cross-examine and this and that, and you're either found guilty or not guilty. Um, and yeah, then, basically for prosecutors, it's put up or shut up. Right. Either you charge or you move on, you don't, and you move on to the next case, you say nothing about it. So the issue here, though, and as Mueller was struggling to explain to certain representatives who were cutting him off because they said it's their time and they only have five minutes, is he says, well, this is a special case of the president of the United States. And in this case, he couldn't charge President Trump. And what a lot of I think what a lot of prosecutors and most prosecutors in his shoes would have done and what I would have done candidly is said, OK, I can't prosecute Trump, but there's sufficient evidence to charge him. And, you know, you, you the rest of the world can make what to make what they will of that. But that's my conclusion. But what Mueller decided is that it would be unfair to Trump to reach that conclusion, because if he did so. Uh, Trump could not go to court and challenge that. He couldn't cross-examine witnesses and bring motions and do all the things that you'd ordinarily do. And so Mueller decided that he was not going to was not going to reach a judgment one way or the other. But then if he let's just say he just did that and he says, well, you know, out of fairness, I'm not going to reach a judgment either way. What Mueller, I think, was concerned at that point is. He would leave the impression that he was saying there wasn't enough evidence that by not getting to it, he would say that he that you couldn't do it. So he that he was, in some sense, exonerating Trump, that he would imply that he was exonerating. And so essentially what he said is, you know, you know, we are not exonerating him. I think the part of it that's interesting that he didn't have to say um, which I don't completely understand why he went this far, but and, and this was a judgment call, I think, on his part, was instead of saying, you know, we aren't considering not to charge him, and that doesn't exonerate him, doesn't mean we're exonerating him, he said, if we could exonerate him, we would have said so. And yeah, it's almost, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a little, it's a little interesting. So I, I don't know why he, he phrased it that way. He, As he, I think, said when he made the earlier statement before he did this today, he chose his words very carefully. And, and part of the reason I think he was a winner today is because he was able to get through all these questions and never really, he never got, the, he never really had those, those decisions uh, taken to task in a way that forced him out of the box that he wanted to be in. Yeah, yeah, I completely um, agree with you. And I think that the line that you just described, which is incredibly, incredibly fine, was possibly the only place that that he had like a slight, like he had he you know he had that exchange with Ted, with Representative Ted Lieu, and then I think he had to walk it back slightly because the way he affirmed Lou's statement, you know, may have implied something that he didn't quite fully imply in the report, which I think it was interpreted as, but for the OLC memo, I would have charged him with obstruction. Is kind of what that exchange left the impression, and I think he wanted to walk it back to no, no, no. I just, I, I just didn't reach a conclusion at all. Um, and again, we're just, 
into this like legal nerd territory um, that I think is really hard for most lay people to really pay attention to and, and follow. And I don't mean that in a condescending way. It's just a, it's just a very fine kind of um, distinction that he's he he wants to to to, to walk this tightrope. I, I am proud to be in the legal nerd uh, club with you, Asha. So that is that is <laughs> fine. I, I will say this uh, about that. You know, one thing that is hanging in the background here that makes all of this a bit of a fiction is that. Although Mueller didn't come out and say that he concluded that Trump committed crimes, he literally walked element by element and said for some of these uh, episodes of obstruction, there's substantial element, uh, excuse me, there's substantial evidence to support element one and two and three. And any educated reader reading that uh, volume two would know that he essentially concluded that Trump had committed obstruction of justice. He just didn't want to say so because saying so uh, and reaching that judgment would essentially, um, uh, you know, put him in a situation where he was, uh, you know, ma making a judgment about Trump that Trump couldn't challenge in court. So it's a bit of an artificial distinction, uh, a legal fiction that's being done here. And no one really called him on that. Um, the, 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 and, and it may be partly because neither side wanted to say it as um, uh, neutrally as I said it now. The Dems are trying to say A plus B plus C equals conviction. And he's like, well, I'm not going to agree with that. And then the, the and they're not going to press the matter. And then the Republicans are all like, well, you didn't you shouldn't be in the business of exonerating. And they don't really want to get to the reality of how tricky it is either. And so he exactly. was able to escape by. Mm hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And Renato, you and I went to a law school where this would have been the substance of like a semester long course. <laughs> I think that's probably <laughs> like, right. Like, like uh, just that one paragraph of his report. It is. I will just say this is the one of the rare instances in the actual practice of law. where having these intellectual exercises that we went through at Yale Law School actually would, you know, resembled legal practice. My actual legal practice, while there's a lot of finesse to it, uh, is rarely about this this level of, of legal uh, legal sophistry. So kudos to Robert Mueller for that. But, and to both of your uh, legal geekiness, uh, there are people who wonder, you know, is there a way for Mueller to clarify? Is there a process for Mueller to amend any answers he gave to either committee? And is there a timeline or format for that? Great question. I'll just say that he, he does have, I think, th th that folks on the committee are going to be submitting written questions. I think they have five legislative days to do that. And then after that, there's a there it's, it's there's no for, I don't I, to, that I'm aware of. There's no formal process to amend testimony. But uh, people who are question witnesses amend testimony regularly. I will say in my practice as a lawyer, when they go back and look at it, and they realize that there's some inaccuracies. And typically what happens is they or their counsel usually will write a letter and say, hey, when I'm looking at this transcript on this page or in this, this line, you know, this isn't quite right. And I'm, bringing, I'm correcting it here as follows. So, you know, just to make sure that the record is correct. Would that be your understanding, Asha? Yeah, that was my understanding, generally speaking, that, that witnesses can amend testimony. Um, you know, if they need to. I mean, you know, often they're they're testifying on complex topics, and you know, it may not even be something adversarial, um, but they need to correct a fact or or something like that, or a statistic, say. Yep, I think that's right. And and in, in this case, I think I could see Robert Mueller 
you know, especially if there were uh, little nuggets that were potentially being taken out of context here, I would not be surprised if he tried to correct the record. I think, you know, one one thing that I I feel pretty strongly is that he is getting um, pilloried a little bit too much for how he looked and how he performed uh, today. You know, there there's been all this you know suggestion when he looks old, he doesn't have a great command of this and that. You know, Robert Mueller is realizes that every word out of his mouth will be carefully scrutinized. The stakes are higher than ever. People are going to be remembering this hearing in history and citing it. There's going to be historians reading the transcript or watching the video or whatever 100 years from now. And he has to try not to make a mistake, even though he's being bombarded by questions, many of which are unfair and given almost no time to respond. So I think he he handled this as well as anyone could. And what I saw was just somebody trying very hard to be careful. Yeah. And I think also, I mean, most of his answers definitely in the first hearing were were confirming or or not confirming. I mean, they were yes or no leading questions that were being asked by members of the committee um, so, you know, I mean, he, he was never kind of going on and on in some robust extended, you know, answer, um, so, uh, typically, um, so, and I think he also had, you know, his deputy there. And I, I, I think precisely for that reason, Renato, to, um, to make sure that he doesn't misspeak or whatever. So I mean, we didn't see him on camera, Aaron Zebley, but. I suspect that that was part of the reason. Yeah, I think what the reason that he wanted to have that guy there was in case there was a question he really, you know, did not recall the specifics of, and he wanted to get it right. Or if he wanted to consult with somebody, you know, if there was a tricky issue, you know, I think he didn't. One thing that Mueller perhaps um, didn't realize is that the the members of Congress were sticking to the time pretty carefully. I mean, Nadler, for example, was just. Um, very hawkish about making sure that they were sticking to the time that was allotted to them. So it meant that they weren't going to give him opportunities to really consider a question. I think he was worried that there'd be a tough question and he wasn't sure about whether or not it would impact a a current proceeding or another investigation. And it would be helpful to have somebody to discuss that with uh, there with him. And so I, I, I thought it was a very reasonable request and it was fairly bizarre that Trump and others made such a big deal about that. Yeah. You know, and one thing I just want to add in terms of um, how sparse he was in in his responses and why this was notable in the Intelligence Committee hearing, he noted that um, the parts of the counterintelligence investigation are ongoing and specifically with uh, regard to whether there may be vulnerabilities being exploited by some of the people who had been investigated. So I just thought that was kind of um, an interesting exchange. Yeah, he had. I will say he had a number of interesting exchanges. I, I thought another interesting exchange that surprised me a little bit was him going into great lengths to defend the people who work for him, whether it was Andrew Weissman or his hiring practices more generally. He felt strongly about trying to ins- in, to assure the public that this uh, investigation was handled in a fair manner. And I I think that it was interesting to me, the subjects that he felt like he wanted to spend some time uh, digging into, whereas there's other subjects where he just sort of waved them off. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. And um, I can't wait to uh, listen to it. Thanks, Sasha. So now let's bring in Jennifer Rogers. Jennifer was a federal prosecutor in the Southern District of New York. She is a CNN legal analyst. 
Uh, and she is somebody who I think is a careful and thoughtful commentator on these issues. Welcome to the podcast, Jen. Thanks for joining us again. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Renato. So I've got to ask you, I followed some of your comments uh, throughout the hearings today, but what was your overall takeaway from uh, Mueller's testimony? Well, I thought that, you know, certainly he didn't undermine anything that was in the report. We still know that the president and people close to him engaged in a pattern of, of really bad behavior and conduct that I think constitutes obstruction of justice. But nor did I think the Dems really gained much ground in terms of going further than the report. So Mueller kind of refused to go beyond the four corners, except in a couple of ways that, that don't really matter to the Dems as far as advancing the impeachment argument. So at the end of the day, I don't think they gained a lot, except to the extent that we are all talking about Mueller and his report today. So we are focused back on that topic again, but I just don't think it moved the ball forward kind of substantively in terms of additional conduct we didn't know about or putting a different spin on that conduct or anything like that. I I agree with you 100 percent. Not surprising. I think you're 100 percent right about that. I will say I think that there were expectations that some people had that were out of whack with reality. I mean, Robert Mueller said he didn't want to testify at all. And if he did, he would stick right to the four corners of the report. And he went and did that. And people are shocked. Right. Everyone's shocked that that's what happened. I don't know what. I don't know what uh, Democrats expected. I mean, I thought the game plan on their end was just that, um, you know, hearing about the report would move opinion. And if if that's the case, I don't you know whether that happens or not. um, You know, they certainly got to talk about the report a lot today. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I do think some people made the point that there really wasn't any legal basis for Mueller to decline to go further and answer some of those questions, especially the ones about the process, you know, when did he make certain decisions? And when the report came out, did Barr mislead the American people about its contents? And I kind of agreed with that. But then, you know, DOJ, of course, asserted executive privilege. And instead of trying to fight that, which in theory, I suppose Mueller could have done, he just kind of said, okay, there are privileges there. I'm not going to wade into any of that. So, you know, I, I think there were some sort of reasonable expectations that we might hear more. Um, but I'm also not surprised that Mueller didn't really push for doing that and, and that we ended up where we were. Yeah, I, from my perspective, I mean, I, you know, I have to, I'm going to be writing a column about this tonight. I think if I had to say who the winner was here, it was Robert Mueller, because, you know, I agree with you. There weren't legal bases to withhold answers to many of these questions, but he got away with it for many reasons. Partly the Democrats didn't want to pick a fight with him. They needed him to say yes, and that's correct when he was reading the report or whatever they were trying to accomplish on their end. And the Republicans, you know, certainly didn't want to draw out all of these extra details. I think they were kind of happy to keep him within the corners of the report. So, He was able to do what he wanted to do, and what he wanted to do was appear above it all or separate from it all, not part of any kind of partisan uh, uh, agenda on either side, and he was going to just say what he said in his report and be very careful. And I think he got away with kind of some very very, um, careful lines on some of these issues, some very careful, he was tiptoeing through a number of legal issues, and no one either had an incentive or the ability as a questioner to get him off of that or to really call that into question. 
Yeah, that's right. And I saw a lot of criticism today that he was seemed slow and was kind of out of it. And, and, you know, and as I think about his performance today, you know, I do think, especially in the first, um, the first hearing, he may have had some trouble hearing the questions and he did seem to need to have them repeated and that sort of thing. But in the end, I think his presentation and his affect was intentional. You know, I think he really did want to emphasize above all the integrity of his process and his team and the report. And I think he knew that if he really came out kind of guns blazing with lots of emotion and, you know, wanted to read sections of the report with emphasis and that, that it would have really undermined all of that. And so I think his kind of flat affect monotone, I'm just going to answer these questions as quickly as I can without much emotion at all, was calculated and was purposeful and, you know, really doesn't allow anyone to attack him on that basis, which, of course, the Republicans were looking to do. I, I agree with you, and I, I think I couldn't agree more with that. And I think that at times Mueller was refusing to, for example, say yes or to repeat certain things or to answer certain questions even that were within his report because he knew it might generate a soundbite that could be taken out of context. I, I, you know, I think, for example, at one point I remember a congresswoman asked him, uh, about uh, you know this extra uh, extra legal process for presidents to be held accountable, and I think she even put something on the screen about that from his report. And it's obvious he's referring to impeachment. And she asked him if he was referring to impeachment, and he was unwilling to say it because I think he thought that getting anywhere near it or having the words escape his lips would be used by uh, Democrats to suggest that he was calling for that. Yeah, I mean, and he wouldn't even read sentences. I mean, a couple times he was asked, will you read this sentence from your report? And he said, I'd rather have you read it. You know, he didn't even want mm-hmm. to, to give them any sort of sound bites. I think that was part of his whole strategy of just very clearly being, you know, straight down the middle and not wanting to appear to be trying to help one side or the, or the other here. Uh, exactly right. And I think what you have is, you know, Republicans – don't have as much incentive. I mean, Trump will attack him no matter what. He's attacking him today. I mean, Robert Mueller could have done almost anything up there other than praise Trump, and he was going to get attacked by Trump. But it's fairly tepid. They're not—I mean, it's it's not going to have the fever pitch that it would have had if he did some of the things that you suggested. So that's definitely— um, the way that I um, looked at it as well. I'm curious, Jen, what you thought of the questioning from you know, the judiciary uh, and the intel committees. They had very different approaches, and they were obviously looking at two different volumes of the report. Yeah, I mean, I do think the questioning in the afternoon by the intel committee went went better. Um, and I'm not exactly sure why. I mean, the Republicans on both committees had a tough job, you know, because they just didn't have a lot to work with. They didn't want him repeating portions of the report or, you know, challenging their recitation of the report. So all the Republicans on both committees were left with a couple of approaches, one to attack him or his team, which they did. Um, And, you know, the other is just to do the whole, well, you found no conspiracy. You know, that's not getting very far. And then the rest of them were just asking questions that he refused to answer over and over about the origins of the investigation with the Steele dossier and GPS fusion and so on. So they had a tough job. Um, I do think the Intel Committee's questions were better um, because, 
you know, at least there's some sort of cohesion around the notion of Russian interference and that being a serious thing. Um, and so maybe it's not quite as controversial as the obstruction part that was the focus of the morning session. He seemed stronger in the afternoon. I think, you know, the two areas in which I thought he kind of was the strongest and was the most animated, if that's even a word you can use to describe Bob Mueller, <laughs> is um, defending his team and then the interference piece, like just that this is a very serious problem our country is facing. It's going to happen again. It's happening right now. People need to be focused on this and paying more attention. So, you know, given that, it just seemed like the second session in the afternoon was kind of meteor. Um, but, it, you know, it was just a tough, it was just a tough position for, for both sides. And the Dems, like what I thought they performed quite well. I thought their questions were good. They were very prepared. They all had their citations ready. They had divided up topics in a way that made sense. Um, but he wasn't playing ball with their, you know, attempts to get these kind of sound bites. And so it was just a, a really tough challenge. It was a tough challenge for both sides, I thought. Indeed. Well, you know, Patty, I think we had a number of questions along these lines about some of the things that Jen just talked about. Well, one of the listeners asked, so how will today's testimony affect the DOJ's ongoing investigation? Do you think that Barr will come up with some BS, their words, uh, I edited that, uh, about the origins? <laughs> uh, that's a great question, Jen. You just were talking about all these questions around that. I thought that was an, he had an interesting tactic of being able to avoid all those questions about what you, I think you mentioned Fusion GPS and so forth by saying, well, there's this other investigation out there. Yeah, I mean, there are a couple things going on, right? We know that the DOJ Inspector General has an investigation that's going on. That um, investigation, I think we're, we're likely to hear the results of fairly soon. Um, the IG is an independent office, so I expect we can put some confidence in the results that, that will come out of that. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to that. Separately, we have Bill Barr saying that he wants to start an investigation into the spying on the campaign and so on, um, led by uh, one of the U.S. attorneys. That, I think, is much more political and I have much less confidence in. Um, so we'll just have to see what comes out of that. But, but either way, I don't think anything that was said today will impact that because he really did just stay away from all of that. He said, it's, it's ongoing. I can't talk about it. There are people looking at that you know, I'm not going to say any more. And he did that, I mean, had to be dozens of times in the face of so many questions from, well, not even questions, kind of speechifying slash questions from the Republicans on that. Yeah, I thought, the, and I thought actually that was very effective because they couldn't argue with that. There was an ongoing investigation. Barr was looking at it. Anything he had to say, the Republicans weren't going to want probably him to say. Uh, and so he was able to just sort of sidestep all of that. And that's interesting. You know, one thing that I was interested in uh, going in this, I, I had kind of predicted that if there were interesting question, answers, that they would probably be the result of Republican questions, not Democratic questions, and um, because they're going to ask such off-the-wall stuff that's not in the report. And here, I think, you know, that, may, that at times was true because there were certain Republicans who I think were really— head scratching about, well, why is it that you didn't, uh, you know, you weren't able to reach a conclusion and this and that, like uh, Sensenbrenner and so on. 
or and Will Hurd had some, I think, very you know sincere questions. But others were just asking about the stuff that it was all about just asking the questions or making speeches uh, about things that he wasn't going to answer. Yeah, I mean, I did think that, and again, I think this goes to what Mueller was trying to do. He certainly could have explained more effectively why he decided not to decide. I mean, it was all about fairness. I mean, he really felt that when you have these kind of allegations out there and you say the elements are met, but we can't charge you, you know, that means you're not going to be in court and the president couldn't defend himself. He felt that was just inherently unfair. And I mean, that says a lot about Mueller's honesty, integrity, fairness, et cetera. And he didn't really get that out today. Um, he didn't try to get that out. But I, I do think that that says a lot about him. Um, it also says a lot about Bill Barr that he was willing to make the call, although only in one direction without having reviewed any of the evidence, et cetera. Um, but, you know, that was an instance where Mueller could have explained himself in a way that I think would have made him look good. Um, but even though there was ample opportunity to do that, he chose not to do that. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Um, by the way, Jen, I agree with you 100 percent. I think that is one of the more remarkable things about what Mueller did in the report was this decision that despite all Trump did to attack him and criticize him, try to undermine his investigation, fire him in the face of all that, the man was trying to be fair to the guy and decided, no, let's not reach a conclusion, which is frankly what most prosecutors would have done, I think, in that circumstance, because he thought it was fundamentally unfair when he couldn't go to court to de to defend himself and challenge those uh, conclusions. And in the f and, you know, uh, you're right that there was all of this discussion of, you know, what do you mean by exoneration and why didn't you why did you say that? Um, today. And uh, Mueller didn't really walk through it the way that I kept trying to do on Twitter and elsewhere to try to explain to people what he meant and why he, he did what he did. I will have to say, sometimes you're, you were right. I think that he had ample opportunity. And other times, I think they were really trying to cut him off um, to prevent him from explaining that in more detail. You know, there was a few times where they were talking about exoneration and so forth, and he's like, well, this is a special case of the president, and they just cut him off and it's my time or, you know, whatever. Yeah, that's true. He, he really didn't stand up for himself as a witness. And, I mean, but again, I just that was seemed to be part of his thing. I mean, he really only did that, meaning kind of stand up for himself and insist on responding when it was about one of those two areas, you know, attacks on his team or um, the notion of, is this a serious issue with respect to the interference? If it was anything else, he just kind of let it slide. I guess he, you know, was just going back to his assumption that people would read it in the report and, you know, he wasn't going to be so vehement about it. There's obviously a lot of concern about the upcoming election, and you know a lot of people are scared that there's going to be more meddling. Uh, they're worried that other hostile nations and non-governmental actors may view what we already publicly know as a roadmap to launch more successful cyber, cyber operations. What's being done to secure all of our critical infrastructure? Yeah, well, that's one of the areas that um, Mueller declined to answer. You know, he was asked about that. Um, and he said he couldn't answer because, you know, there was classified material in there. Um, 
you know, so, and I think that's right. So I don't know that we know what's being done. I do think because it was one of the areas that he was more interested in and really wanted to get his point across, he's concerned about it. And the fact that he did this whole investigation into this and that he knows what he knows, (laughs) much of which we don't know, and he's very concerned about it and is telling us to be concerned about it should tell us basically how concerned we ought to be and that we really need in any way that we can to hold our government's feet to the fire to try to make sure that they do what they can because all evidence is, at least from the top, the president, he doesn't care and he's not trying to do anything. So, you know, it's going to be left to Homeland Security and DOJ and other components of the government to see what they're doing. And I think we ought to be very concerned about that. It's very well said, Jen. I agree with you. And of course, there's been some news reports that Trump uh, is not being briefed on these issues because he gets upset and and does not want uh, elections to be protected. And maybe it doesn't. It gets it makes him angry. Well, I think I think in his mind it calls into legitimacy his win in 2016. I will say I thought that that was very interesting. You know, Will Hurd, I think the Republican. Uh, from South Texas was the one who raised, you know, asked the question, what would you do? What What do you think we should be doing to protect our elections? And Mueller didn't want to get go there. It's suggesting policy. And he's basically like, I don't have any global views on that, which is fair. I mean, it's not his his lane or his role as a prosecutor. But I think it is interesting. And it's something that, you know, w- that really is a, a, a question that is left open. I think that you know, Mueller's testimony really leaves open some questions. That's one of them. Another one, of course, that I've been asked to today, and I, you know, you can, I'd be interested in your take, Jen, is, you know, what does this mean for impeachment and Pelosi and the Democrats and all that? Uh, and then I, another question that I don't think will be resolved anytime soon is what happens to Trump illegally, assuming that he stays in office for some period of time after he, you know, what happens after he leaves? Does he have this liability sitting there? And I think all of that is just sort of left out there today. And I think these these stories are going to percolate under the surface for, for oh, quite some time to come. Yeah, I mean, you know, taking the second one first, you know, if he is reelected, we know that the statute of limitations will run um, and no one would be able to charge him because it won't be told. I don't imagine that it'll be told. He, Mueller was asked that question today and de- declined to get into the legal analysis of that. But I don't think I know anyone serious who thinks that um, – the statute would be told, so so the clock on that would expire. Um, but even if he's not reelected, you know, he technically could be charged, of course, because there's a five-year statute of limitations. But it's just really hard for me to see that politically uh, a Democratic administration coming in and a new Democratic president and AG would be willing to go there. You know, I, I feel like everyone would just say, listen, let's just move on, look forward. We're not about prosecuting our political opponents. Let's just, you know, move forward as a a nation and and go from there. So that even though some of the candidates, I think Kamala Harris suggested that that she would want to have an investigation started and and maybe a prosecution, but I find it hard to believe that if that actually is where we end up, that that's what will happen there. That's interesting. You know, I I am not sure about that. I mean, partly I'm not I'm not a political expert, so I you know I'll take this for what it's worth. But I right, I do either. think <laughs> I do think that the next uh, Democratic president will actually be in a bit of a pickle. I mean, if Trump lost in 2020, I think that there'll be a lot of people out there asking why wouldn't the why would you tell the Justice Department not to look at this right? And so I think what would happen is President whoever that would be um, pick your the whoever that can't whether it's 
you know, Biden or Harris or Warren or whoever, you know, they, they would probably, I would think, say, well, I'm not going get, to get involved in what the Justice Department decides. And then some career people maybe at the Justice Department would make a recommendation on that. And I don't know. It's not at all clear to me how that would proceed. Um, you could potentially have a Democratic president say, OK, I'm going to pardon Trump or I'm going to decide we're not going to criminally go forward. But that 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 could potentially have a political cost in a different direction. It would say quite a message that would be uh, not helpful. That's true. Although, you know, what we haven't talked about at all is the possibility that he would try to pardon himself before he's out of office, too. I mean, that's out there as well, although I think legally the the self-pardon is, uh, you know, I don't think anyone quite knows the answer as to whether that's okay or not. But, you know, I wouldn't put it past him to try for sure on his way out the door. I wouldn't either. And of course, one way that we know would be legally sound would be resigning uh, a day early and having Pence pardon him, uh, which, you know, Gerald Ford did that for Nixon. I don't see any reason why that wouldn't work here. Um, that would be the more savvy legal strategy. But, you know, whether he would do that, I don't know. You can't predict what that guy will do in the future. Right. I am curious uh, about the, you know, the issue of how, where this leaves Pelosi and the Dems and mm-hmm. all of that. You know, I I have to say, um, you know, from my perspective, I have been skeptical that um, impeachment would move forward for some time, mostly because Nancy Pelosi doesn't want it to. And there's some portion of her caucus uh, from what the, the certain members of Congress have told me. There's, you know, a, a certain portion that doesn't want impeachment. And so if they really don't want that to happen, the Democrats have to be unified and they just don't have the vote. So I don't know how much this really changed that at all one way or the other today. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you know, again, that's, of course, a political question, which is not my area. But um, other than the fact that everybody's now talking about this again, so we have at least a couple of days of attention now refocused on the Mueller report, which hasn't been there in a while. I just don't think that they got anything outside the four corners of the report that's helpful. And the form in which they got out some of the uh, facts in the report was also not great and I don't think was quite what they wanted. I mean, there have been a lot of efforts since the report came out to try to get people to pay attention to what's in there. And and what's in there, as you know, is actually incredibly damning. Um, But no one's read it. And, you know, there have been podcasts and newscasts to end all, you know, just constant news about it. There was that play where people, celebrities read it. I mean, people are trying to get it into the national consciousness and people still don't seem to care. So I don't know how, you know, if people didn't read the report, they didn't sit down to watch six hours of live coverage of Mueller's testimony either. And they didn't really get the kind of exciting sound bites they were looking for. So I don't know how today's events are really going to capture the public's imagination in a way that would move the needle for Pelosi, right, which is what I think she thinks is lacking, which is why her enthusiasm is not there. So I don't know. I'm with you. I just don't see how it it was. It just wasn't enough, I don't think, to to make a big difference on that. I think that's right. And I and, you know, I don't I don't think either of us know exactly why it is that there hasn't been more interest or things haven't moved. But I do think one one uh, one takeaway I had from reading the report the first time was how much in there I already knew because I had been paying attention to the news. And I think certainly having it all together in one place mattered. And there were certainly a number of details that we hadn't heard before. But the vast majority of the report all, was already contained in 
you know, articles in places like the New York Times and Washington Post and elsewhere. And so for a, there was a kind of a lot of this had been a slow drip over a period of time. And people's expectations were kind of sky high. I think there's this runaway expectations. They were expecting something much grander than what it was. And so even though it was a very damning report and had lots of amazing detail, um, it, you know, it did not necessarily have the impact that some people were thinking it was, and I think in an unfair way, they had unfair expectations. Yeah, I think you're right. And it was funny, there was some kind of bizarro moment today where one of the Republicans was questioning about the quotes from media sources in the report. I mean, it was almost suggesting like the media had made it up or something, you know, that it wasn't, they had just compiled news reports, they hadn't actually done any investigation. Um, but that kind of goes to your point. We we really did, if you're someone who pays attention to these things, knew most of it beforehand, which did dull its impact. And, you know, the same is true of today. There's really no new information. Like all of this is stuff that, that we knew about before. And so the public's kind of like, you know, tell me something I don't know. Yeah, I think people have made up their minds about this for better or for worse. I will say this, this, this hearing today did break through. Um, to people who otherwise weren't paying attention to this. Uh, I was getting texts from family members who generally do not pay attention to this sort of thing, are not, they don't, you know, they don't watch uh, congressional hearings. They don't care about legal developments and they don't follow politics all that closely. And they knew I was interested. So they would text me their thoughts or their views or whatever, or they would email me. And I definitely saw that, you know, many of these folks who otherwise would have been watching The Price is Right were now watching a congressional hearing. And, um, you know, whether that has an impact or not, we, that remains to be seen. Um, and, but I thought that's what Democrats were trying to get out of today. And whether they got it or not, you know, what the impact of that is or not is sort of beyond us. I think one thing that, you know, has been underlying a lot of the questions that we've been getting from listeners, because I looked through all of them, is, well, what, what is, how does this impact all of these legal things that are out there, right? Because a lot of people are seeing all these lawsuits that are getting filed. There's, you know, all this, this whole battle between Congress and Trump. And there's obviously the impeachment thing looming as a potentiality. And from my perspective, nothing that happened today really changes much of anything on any legal front. Uh, do you agree? Yeah, I do. And, you know, you also start to think about whether, it was the right strategy to to do it this way. I mean, all these other witnesses, the actual substantive witnesses that you would call to put evidence in front of the committee for the vote, like Don McGahn, for example, Corey Lewandowski, these people, right? You know, I do think if you had those kinds of witnesses, people would tune in, you know, in the way that they tuned in for Michael Cohen, for example. Now, he has all sorts of issues as a witness, but he was saying things that people wanted to know, right, what he was going to say. Sure. Um, Bob Mueller, it turns out, didn't really tell us anything other than what we already knew. And I don't know that, that Don McGahn would either, but at least he's telling us stuff that happened to him, right? He's kind of setting the stage and all of that, giving us real testimony as opposed to just kind of agreeing with, with what was written down. So... I don't know about their strategy. I also don't understand why they haven't pushed harder for those witnesses. I thought they had the better of those arguments weeks and weeks ago. So, you know, I don't really know what the delay is. I, I think their um, their argument for getting those witnesses before them is strong. 
Um, I don't know if you agree with that, but I'm kind of, you know, I feel like the momentum has been has been leaking away and it's only going to continue to do so and, and time is ticking and of the essence. And so, you know, I, I don't know what's going to happen from here, but I feel like if they really were pushing for uh, impeachment, they should have started trying to get those witnesses in the door and be in court litigating about that weeks ago. Well, you're certainly right that um, the time is running out for them. Their 2020 election is approaching, and if they don't you know, make any movement on this soon, it, it won't happen or it won't happen uh, until much later. I will say that I think that this is actually um, uh, the result. It's not the fault of congressional Democrats, but really the, the a result of a very highly obstructive strategy by the Trump administration and some structural advantages that the administration has. In other words, yeah, I think the, Mueller to me was essentially a backup witness and really the only person that they could get that, that they could get without having this sort of fight with the administration because Mueller was not going to abide by the administration's wishes on you know him not testifying. He was not going to want to appear like he was being hidden and was playing into the White House's hand or anything like that. He didn't want to pick sides. But, uh, you know, for Don McGahn, you know, he is, you know, he, he does not want to be seen as against the administration or against Republicans. So he's going to play along with whatever the administration wants. And they have gone to court, but it's just taking a long time. And they've gotten some well, didn't they get some district court victories? They had a couple of good victories on certain is- issues that they were litigating. And, but they're back and forth. And, uh, you know, the administration is, is putting them in a position where they, they're trying to, they, they are trying to, you know, take positions that they've got to go to court to defend. And then once those fail, the administration will make some kind of compromise that's not acceptable to Democrats. Then that's going to potentially have to get litigated. And courts are weary of of wading into intra uh, branch, you know, between the executive and legislative branch fights. And so, you know, unless courts are really excited about expediting everything, this is going to take many months. Yeah, no, I don't disagree. It's a, it's a very tough position to be in, but you know, if they're serious about it, I just feel like they got to move faster. Yeah, I think that I think that's fair. I think what I would say is, to me, this is where having Pelosi with the view that she has impacts it because the real levers uh, again to use against the administration would be these fights that they have over funding and policy and so forth. And if they said they weren't going to raise the debt ceiling unless witnesses started showing up, that might have a different impact. But Nancy Pelosi's not going to hold up her negotiations on the death ceiling or anything else, um, you know, in order to get Don McGahn in a witness chair. That's just not what she's going to do. And I think that um, is really uh, what is impacting that fight. Yep. Priorities. Indeed. Well, I will just say, Jen, um, before we go, it, what do you think that listeners should be watching out for in the weeks to come? I mean, now we've uh, we actually had some other important legal news this week, like a lawsuit over tax returns uh, and uh, an antitrust probe of the tech giants, all sorts of things that are happening. Uh, what, what are you looking at right now? Well, I'd be watching these two committees closely to see what they do next. I mean, if it, they really are... 
uh, judiciary, particularly with the impeachment inquiry possibility, if they're really gearing up to do this investigation, then we should be hearing that more witnesses are coming in or they're, you know, going to court to, to press the subpoenas that they've issued. You know, if they're going to move, you know, they kind of had Mueller out there as, oh, well, we're going to have Mueller and then we're not going to worry about what comes next until that happens. So if they now are going to move forward, I think we ought to see some evidence of that in short order with trying to get the witnesses in and try to, to unblock some of the, the jam-ups that the administration has caused with the flow of evidence. So um, I don't know what we will see, if anything, but if anything's going to happen, then we're, we're going to see something and it's going to be pretty soon. I think that makes a lot of sense. Well, well, we have a lot to watch for. Thank you so much for joining us, Jen. I really appreciate it. Of course. Always great to talk to you. If you enjoyed this episode, please look in the description and fill out our first ever listener survey. We really want your feedback and you'll get a chance to win an Amazon gift card. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic.